series, and guess where we are? Psalm 70. So take your Bible. So I'm going to dedicate our teaching this morning to Vernon and Rodina Anderson on their 70th anniversary. Psalm 70 for our Psalms and the Psalms. So when you get there, I want you to first of all take a, a glimpse at the Psalm, and you will notice something immediately. You notice that it is very short, don't you? It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. It's only five verses. And what makes this psalm somewhat interesting and unusual is that these five verses are also found at the end of Psalm 40. There's only one other psalm that's repeated in the Bible. That's Psalm 14. It's repeated again in Psalm, I think, 53. That's the one that says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. That psalm's repeated twice. And this is repeated from the end of chapter, or Psalm 40, with just a few minor variations. And so what we think has happened is that King David, uh, or somebody else, uh, is facing a situation, a very desperate situation, and in their crisis, they turn to Psalm 40 and they read it. And the end of Psalm 40, the last five verses of Psalm 40, speak to their heart and they write them down and uh, it becomes a psalm on its own. So, it's very interesting. Now, before we actually dive into this psalm, I want to make a few general observations about Psalms because we're just starting our series for the summer. Some of our friends haven't been in this series, right? You know this is our sixth year in the Psalms? It's hard to believe, isn't it? And uh, that means that we are in Psalm 70, starting our sixth year. Now there are only 150 Psalms. Well, that's quite a bit, isn't it? And we're in Psalm 70. That means we're nearly half finished. And in 15 weeks, when we finish our Psalms in the summer series, we'll be on Psalm 85, and we'll only have 65 left. That means we'll be about 70% through the Psalms. Now, if you were with us when we started, I said, how many people plan to be with us for the next 10 years? Because we're going to do 10 Psalms, 15 psalms a year. Remember that? And some of you didn't raise your hand. And you're still around, aren't you? Huh? And you're going to be around at the end of this. And, uh, it hope, and hopefully I will too. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach through 150 psalms verse by verse in my life. Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary called The Psalms of David. Where, and he did it. But that was, you know, 150 years ago. So I haven't heard anybody do that. But let me make some general uh, statements and give you some insights about psalms in general. First of all, uh, the psalms appear originally in what we call the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew Bible was arranged differently than our English Bible. The Hebrew Bible was divided into three sections. The first section is called the Law, and that's the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Section two is called the Prophets in the Hebrew Bible. 
starting with Samuel, and includes all the writings of people who were prophets during Old Testament times. And then the third book, the third section of the Hebrew Bible, is called the writings. Starting with the Psalms and ending with the book of Chronicles. So in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. Now what's the last book in the Old Testament in our English Bible? Malachi. What was Malachi? He was a prophet. In the Hebrew Bible, he appears in the second section. So that's just sort of something interesting. Now, because the Psalms was the first book in the writings, in time, people began to use the word writings and psalms interchangeably. So if you wanted to say, let's go to the writings, sometimes you would just say, let's go to the psalms. And I'm going to show you this. I'm going to show you a person who called the writings psalms. Okay? Now, there were more than psalms, right? There were psalms and a whole bunch of other books. But that's just how it became known. So I want you to turn over to, keep your finger here, and I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 24. And this is Luke's account of Jesus after his resurrection. And you know how he appeared to his disciples. And look what he does when he meets with his disciples. Luke chapter 24, and look down at verse 44. Luke 24, 44. Look what it says, it says. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, meaning in my earthly body, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in, look, the law of Moses, that's section one, right? Look next. The prophets, section two. And then look at the next one. The what? Psalms. Section 3. Now, if you were reading that and didn't understand the Hebrew Bible, you would think he was just referring to what? The Psalms properly. But what is he referring to? All the writings. Okay, so that's sort of something interesting. Now, this is what I would do in a college classroom. I would, if I were teaching a book of Psalms, I would start giving a whole bunch of general information like this that you usually don't get when you go to a church service and you hear a sermon or even a Sunday school. So I thought you would be interested in that. Now, the Psalms proper. Now we're going to their book of Psalms. You go back to Psalm 70. Consist of 150 songs or Psalms. Okay? One of the interesting features of many of the Psalms is the superscription above the Psalm. Okay, so the superscription, in this case, you'll notice the words to the chief musician. Do you see that? That's called a superscription. It was not put there by King David or whoever else wrote the Psalms. It was added later, but it is uh, probably added, you know, maybe during the Babylonian captivity to try to give you some insight into what the Psalm is about. So here, on the superscription, you see it's to the chief musician. That particular superscription is found in 55 of the Psalms, which tells us that the Psalms were songs that were to be set to music. 
and the chief musician would be the choir director who's going to set this to music. The next part of the superscription in Psalm 70, it's called a psalm or a song of David. He writes the lyrics. Of the 150 psalms, David writes 74 of them. Okay? Now in Spurgeon's commentary on psalms, he calls them the psalms of David. In other words, that's the title of his book. But the Psalms are not all by David. Only 74 of them are by David. But, and this is one of them. So this is a Psalm written by King David. Now there's something else in that superscription. What does that say? To bring to remembrance. This is the goal or the purpose of the Psalm. It's to bring to remembrance something. And maybe the situation is that those future generations, like King David himself, who find themselves in a crisis, are to remember that they must turn to God. Could mean that. Remember. Or it could mean, it could mean, hey, when you're in a crisis, you're crying out for God to remember you and not forget you. So we're not sure which it is, but when we go through the verses, you'll determine what you think it is. Okay? But that's the goal or the purpose of this particular now another thing about psalms, in general, is that many of the psalms take on the form or the structure of Hebrew poetry. Now unlike American poetry that rhymes, roses are red, violets are blue, you know, your feet stink and mine do too, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. Rather, the feature of Hebrew poetry is repetition. And you'll read, even in this psalm, that there'll be a sentence, what we're going to call line one. The first sentence will say something. And then there'll be a second sentence, and it'll say the same thing only in different words, but mean exactly the same thing. There'll be a repetition of thought. Okay? And you're going to see that that's the case in this psalm as well. Okay? What we have when we look at the Psalm 70 is we have four petitions. Okay? So let's look at this psalm, and you'll see some of these features as we go through the, verse, uh, the text verse by verse. So let's look at Psalm 70 and verse 1. Petition number 1. Request number 1, we'll call it that way. <clears throat> this is a petition-type a petition prayer. David says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Uh, this is a, because he says make haste, uh, this is a prayer or a cry of desperation. Uh, David faces a very urgent crisis, and uh, he needs immediate help, and there's absolutely no time to lose. So he says, hurry up. You know, make haste. Um, that puts this kind of psalm in a, in a category of urgency. You know, <clears throat> many of you have had operations, you had knee operations and different things, and uh, you know, they set a date, month down the line or whatever it is, and you, and you go and you have that operation, but it's not an emergency. You don't say, make haste to the doctor, but there are other times when you're taken to an emergency room, isn't that right? And time is of the essence. This is what happens when there's a disaster. They set up a triage unit 
where action has to be taken immediately. David say, take action now. And what have we seen happen uh, just this past week or two with the VA administration? People who have urgent needs, and what are they doing? They're delaying, and the people are saying, we need help now. And David says, I need help now. Make haste, hurry, don't delay. Don't spare a second. I mean, when I say now, I mean now, God. So he's making some commands. Now look at the parallelism there, the repetition. Look at line number one, okay? Line number one. Make haste. Look at line number two, what does it say? Make haste, do you see that? Look at line number one. Make haste, O God. See? Look at the end of line number two. What does it say? O Lord. You see that? O God and O Lord are the same. Different words, but mean the same thing. Look what he says in line number one. O deliver me. Look what he says in line number two. What? O help me. That's Hebrew poetry. Repetition. Parallelism. Does that make sense? So if I were to ask you what's David asking for, he's saying, God, I need help, and I need it now. Don't spare a moment. Okay? Now, look at verse number two, and we'll see petition number two. Okay? He says, let them be ashamed and confounded. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Okay, now... Notice the pronoun, them. So them are the enemies of King David. They are described, this is, this is for those of you who can remember some English, they are described in this verse by the relative pronoun, who. Do you remember that word, relative pronoun? Remember that term? Okay. These are his enemies, they're the them, and who are them? Look who they are. Those who what? Seek my life. Uh, so there are people that want him dead. And guess what? They want him dead now. Okay? And there's no time to spare. Okay? So, look at the request. Here's what he requests. Let them, number one, be ashamed. Uh, what we think is this is a battle scene. And when an army lost a battle, it walked away with its tail between its legs. It was embarrassed. Especially a pagan nation who had gods. And they were fighting in the name of their gods. And they lost the battle and they were ashamed. And David is basically saying, let them lose the battle and may Israel's God you know, prevail. And then he says, look, not only let them be ashamed and lose the battle, he says, let them be confounded. Uh, let them be disoriented in the battle. Let them be confused in the battle. Uh, a couple years ago, Robert McNamara wrote a book. It was called The Fog of War. And when you think of fog, you think of being disoriented. Think of being confused. He's talking about the Vietnam War. And how he and you know the president and uh, you know he was the Secretary of Defense or whatever, uh, thought it was great to get into this war. We can go in and it'll be a victory immediately, and then, oh, we'll be out of there by Christmas. Remember that? We'll be out of Vietnam by Christmas. 
Well, it didn't happen, did it? It's like, you know, what we're into now. We've been in the war for 10 years. There's a fog of war. You have plans, but the best laid plans of men fail. And uh, this is what he's asking them to do. They've got a game plan. They're working the plan. It looks like they're going to defeat David any day now. And he's saying, Lord, uh, defeat them, and may they be confused, those who seek my life. So that's the request. Uh, the enemy's right on the verge of winning, and there's no time for God to spare. He has to act now. Now look at line number two in verse two. <clears throat> look what it says. Let them be turned back. See, so you have to let them and to let them. Line number one, let them. Line number two, let them. Look at line number one. Let them be ashamed. Line number two, let them by what? Turn back. So to be ashamed means to be lose the battle and turn back. You see, if you don't understand Hebrew poetry, you would be reading it wrong, and you would be thinking that these two lines are saying something different. They're saying the exact same thing, only in different words. Now look in line number one. Let them be confounded. Look in line number two. Let them be what? Confused. You see that? So that's the request. Uh, what's happened here is that these people are desiring David's life. They're desiring to, uh, to hurt David. Notice he says in line number one, those who seek my life. Look at line number two in verse two. Those who desire my what? Or they want him hurt. <laughs> they want Israel defeated. So this is what we see, this parallelism here. Now look at petition number three. Okay, And that's found in verse number three. Still with me? <clears throat> okay, here it is. Let them be turned back, and he's going to give us a reason why he wants this foreign army to be turned back or defeated. Because of their shame. means because of their shameful ways. Because of the things they were doing, which are totally unethical. Even in war, there are rules of war. Uh, there were in Bible times. Uh, but these people are doing something that's very shameful uh, and uh, that's uh, condescending, I guess. What are they doing? Uh, look how they're described in verse 3. Let them be turned back because of their shame. And here's what they're doing that's shameful. Who say, Aha! Aha! See, they're mocking David. They're mocking the Israel army. They're saying, that's David, that's the mighty David who can't, who can't lose a battle? Huh. This is like a walk in the park. We're going to have this thing won by Christmas. Yeah, nations need to watch out because so often we say, uh-huh. <laughs> that's the fog of war. <laughs> so they're scoffing and they're taunting David. They're saying, aha, aha. That's a taunt. They are, they are shaming the, the God of Israel by doing that with their shameful life. It's like Goliath. Remember when David fought Goliath? No one could defeat David, uh, could defeat Goliath, and they said, David said, well, give me that slingshot, and I'll take a couple stones here. There's a great big giant, and here comes this kid, and he says, 
Am I a dog? Did you send a kid to fight me? David said, well, I come in the spirit of God. That's the taunt, you see. They, they were taunting. They were so confident that the victory was assured that they are counting their chickens before they hatch. <laughs> you, know, you have to watch out, you know. Uh, they're laughing that this is too easy. So that's petition number three. Okay, now look at petition number four, and that's found in verse four. Now David switches his attention from his enemies to his allies and his friends. <clears throat> this would be the people of Israel. And look what he says in verse four. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Okay. So now this is a different crowd. The first crowd was them, and this crowd is those. Notice the relative pronoun. By the way, did you notice all the relative pronouns throughout the psalm so far? Look, verse 2, who, you see that? Verse 2, who, verse 3, who, say, aha. Now verse 4, those who, and this is a different group. This is a group who do what? Seek you. All those who seek you, and here's the request, let them, number one, rejoice. In other words, don't allow them to be defeated, okay? And have to hang their head down. And number two, let them be glad. Let them be glad. And notice the sphere of this rejoicing. Look at the sphere of this gladness. Let them rejoice and be glad where? In you. See, in you. That's the sphere. So David is anticipating that God is going to answer his prayer. He's going to come right in the nick of time. He's going to make haste. He's going to turn the tables on the enemy. The enemy is going to be put to shame and run away. And that God's people will rejoice and they'll be glad. But they'll be glad not in what they've done. The rejoicing will be in the Lord. Because he's done it. They were losing the battle. <laughs> they know that something supernatural has happened. So David requested they'll be glad in you. So, it's very interesting. So you have a sort of a, a contrast here. When you compare David's friends, see, with the enemies. David's friends and the enemies. So, the enemies, in verse 2, seek my life. You see that? They seek my life. That's what the enemies do. The enemies do what? Seek his life. Now look what the believers do. In verse 4, they seek who? You. They seek God. There's a difference. <laughs> Here's the difference. One group seeks revenge. One group seeks David's harm. The other group seeks God. One group wants their will done. The other group wants God's will done. So you see that sort of comparison and contrast. The one group seeks God. How do you think they seek God? If I said to seek God, what would you do, probably? You pray. One group seeks God through prayer. See? In faith. In faith. The other group seeks David's life in battle. Through force. Now notice, the one group is operating... In prayer, that's their weapon. 
What's the other group's weapon? Swords, spears, horses. The one group seeks God. See? Seeks God through faith. The other group seeks David's life through force. Both have power at their disposal. See? But the power of the one group is God. And the power of the other group is man's ability to win a battle. And that's the, the contrast that you see. So David's prayer is now taking a turn. It goes from a lament, hurry up God, to, hey, help us win this battle and that our people can be glad and rejoice in you. Okay, so that's line number one. Now look at line number two in verse four. Line number one, let those. Line number two, let those. Okay. Line number one, let those seek you. Line number two, let those who love your what? Salvation. That's what it means to seek God. They were seeking God in prayer, but what were they seeking God in prayer for? Salvation. Now, not salvation to go to heaven. Salvation from the enemy. Deliverance from the enemy's spears. Deliverance from the battle. So here we see that they are seeking God to be on their side and deliver them. Say, let those who love your salvation, but watch this, say continually, say continually, let God be magnified. Let God be magnified. <clears throat> Some translations say, let them say God is great. Doesn't matter, it means basically the same thing. How often are they to do that? Continually. After the salvation, after the deliverance takes place, guess what they're to continually to say? Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's what they say continually. What do the enemies say continually? Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. That's why it's listed twice. <laughs> so you won't think they just said it once. They were saying it continually. So they were saying, aha, we got him beat. They were saying that before the fact. <laughs> God's people say, praise be to God after the fact because God's won the battle on their behalf. Does that make sense? Can you see how Israel, generations later, uh, when they would face a crisis, Maybe they were in the Babylonian captivity. Maybe whatever the situation was. Long after David's dead. And they find themselves in a crisis. In a dilemma that they can't get out of. Up against the wall with nowhere to go. How they could turn to that song. And how it would comfort them and show them exactly what's required of them. Not by might. Not by the sword. But my, my what? Spirit says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord will fight this battle for them. So this is a worshiping. They're worshiping God. Let God be magnified. It is the result of deliverance. And they exalt God. The other group says, aha! That's the result of arrogance. And it exalts man. So you see the difference there. Okay, now let's look at this final verse. And here David now turns back to his original request. <clears throat> Turns back to what he's doing in verse 1. Look what he says in verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Now what does he mean that he's poor and needy? He means basically, I'm without resources. I have needs. 
he's uh, describing maybe he's running out of you know, troops, maybe he's running out of supplies, maybe they cut the supply line off. He has no way to win this battle. All of his resources are gone. By the way, he says something very similar to that back in 60, uh, Psalm 69 and verse 29. Look what he says. He says, I am poor. You see that? That's what he says in Psalm 75, 70 verse 5. I am poor. I'm sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Basically the same thing that he says. That's why some of the commentators believe that Psalm 70 is an epilogue of Psalm 69. He's just continuing on with that, uh, that prayer, that thought. Sort of an appendix to 69. Some others believe that it's a preface to Psalm 71. And you'll see that because in Psalm 71, in verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to what? Shame. So you see that same thing repeated. So you see things that are that are mentioned in Psalm 69 and Psalm 70 that are repeated, uh, Psalm 71 that are repeated in Psalm 70. So Psalm 70 is like a, an appendix to 69 and a preface to 70. And it's a situation where David is in dire straits and Israel is in dire straits. So he says, I am poor and I'm needy. Just like a... Uh, in Old Testament times, a needy person would be an orphan and no resources to take care of him or herself. A needy person would be a widow, no resources to take care of themselves. So David puts himself in the category of someone who has no resources left, and he only has one place to turn, and that's God. There's no you know, other nations coming to his help, so he says, I am poor and needy. And then look what else he says in verse 5 of Psalm 70. Make haste to me, O God. You see that? Make haste to me, O God. That's a repeat of verse 1. There's not a minute to spare. You know, you need to act now. And then he goes on to say, You are my help and my deliverer. Uh, there is a declaration of confidence. If you've ever heard of one. Uh, notice the word my mentioned twice there. He uh, has this personal relationship with God. My and he says, God is my help. And so that's what he's asking God to do. Make haste and help him. He says, God is my deliverer, my Savior who will deliver me out of this situation. Okay. And then finally he says, Oh Lord, look at this, do not delay. You know, if the Lord doesn't hurry, David's doomed. <laughs> and Israel's doomed. So uh, we see a principle here. Uh, when we have absolutely nothing at our disposal and we reach the end of our rope. And you know what it means to reach the end of your rope, literally? That means when the rope's running out and you reach up and then you go up and there's nothing there, you've reached the end of your rope. And that's what David has done. And when we reach the end of our rope and there's nothing left, yeah. We're absolutely needed. No resources at our, our disposal. When we do that, we do still need to reach up. But not for rope. We reach up to God in that act of desperation. In that absolute moment of need. And you know, whenever you feel that God's forsaken you, because David says, make haste. 
this battle is not a one-day battle. It's been going on. It looks like it was a defeat. And David feels like God has forsaken him. When he feels like God has forsaken him, guess what? He doesn't forget God. See? Uh, and that's really important. <clears throat> so we reach up to God. Uh, you look at Jesus. He's hanging on the cross. And one of these cries from the cross is, My God, my God, why have you what? So he felt forsaken. But God hadn't forsaken. Now wait a second. He died, didn't he? You were standing there and you heard Jesus crying out to God to help him, and guess what? He takes his last breath and he dies. You'd say, well, God forsook him. But what happened three days later? Raised him up. <laughs> Never to die again. He came and did his plan. Every one of us is going to die one day. Until then, no matter what the dire straits are, we should be crying out to God. There's going to be one day when we cry out to God, and guess what? It's going to seem like He hasn't answered us. And we're going to pass this life, and we say, oh, it's all over. But guess what? One day, God's going to raise us from the dead when Jesus Christ comes back. And our bodies are going to be whole like they've never been whole before. Never to die again. And so he'll even answer that. He'll answer our dying prayer, but not the moment we think he will. But other than that time, you know, we should be crying out to God. Now, I can imagine two scenarios when I read this. Scenario number one is I imagine David has been crying out to God for help throughout the battle. Sort of the way David does things. And uh, God hasn't answered throughout this whole battle. However, it's lasted three weeks, three months, you know, whatever it is. Over two seasons, you know, there were wartime seasons and there were seasons when you didn't go to war because of the weather, things like that. I can imagine that he was crying out to God the whole time and, and God hasn't answered and now we're coming down to the end. And what does David do? Does he give up like King Saul and go to the witch of Ender for help? And when God says, why did you do that? He said, because when I called out to you, you didn't answer. So I went to the witch of Ender. Is that what he does? No, he keeps crying out to God until God finally answers. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two could be a little different. David may have forgotten about God. You ever do that? You get to pray one day, something like that? You know, David wasn't perfect. He had a lot of faults. <laughs> he got himself into a lot of trouble where he didn't think about God. But, you know, and this could have been the situation where he said, hey, we got more men than they've got. We can win this thing. And guess what? He goes under his own strength. David was known to do that. One time he took a survey to see how many men he had in his army, whether he could put together an army to win a battle. And the Bible says, it was Satan who tempted David to do that. I don't think that David thought it was Satan. He just thought, I'm counting my men, see if I can win this thing. Oh, we can win it. See, he's going to go under his own strength. But takes God out of the picture. Maybe that's the situation. He hasn't been seeking God. But guess what? Now he faces death, and what does he do? In the last second, he cries out to God. I want to tell you something. I don't care what your past has been. It doesn't matter whether you've forgotten God. 
It's never too late to cry out to God. I mean, Judy, mother on her deathbed. She didn't think about God doing her life, but what did she do at the end? Cry out to God. It's never too late to cry out to God, no matter what your past has been. You know? So we have two groups here when I look at this. The one seeks harm and of David, and they have all the resources. And then you have David who seeks God, and he has no resources. And who loses? The one with all the resources. <laughs> You've heard the saying, he who, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. No, he just loses the most. So, there are people who get their eyes on the wrong thing and they seek after money, after power, after fame, you know, after status, after pleasure, you know, the downfall of somebody else, the harm of somebody else, that's what they're seeking, to knock somebody else down. In the end, they lose. And here, when you're at the end of your rope and you have no resources, you still have God. And you win. With no resources. Yeah, I think of Jim. What's the chances? Guess what? Here he is today with a clean, clean MRI. God. That's God. See? You cry out to God and you say, by faith, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Our extremities are God's opportunities. And then when he comes through, guess what we're to do? Magnify him continually. Magnify him continually. And to that, every one of us can say, Amen. Next week, we'll pick up at Psalm 71, which is nearly five times as long as Psalm 71. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our, uh, our text. I thank you for your sacred word. A word that lives and guides us today as much as it did 3,000 years ago. Oh Lord, help us to feed on the Psalms. May they be the basis and the source for our inspiration and our, our worship. And may we find comfort in them and principles that will guide us when we too face enemies. In Christ's name, amen.